Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Revenue Integrity Show, Anari podcast. Um, we've got another great program for you today on provider involvement in revenue integrity. Uh, before we go ahead and get into some of our announcements and talk to our guests today, uh, just a quick introduction about myself and the association. Uh, my name is Jacqueline Fitzgerald, and I am the director of NARI. We're the National Association of Healthcare Revenue Integrity. If you haven't had a chance to check us out yet, you can find us over at nari.org, N-A-H-R-I.org. We've got a lot of great resources, webinars, uh, networking, and news over on the website for you. And of course, you can use the website to go ahead and catch up on past episodes of the podcast. Um, additionally, we are across several different podcast platforms, so pick your favorite one, and we are probably on there. Last time um, we aired, we had talked about healthcare consumer payment trends. My guests on that program were David Stavitar, the senior partner at CWH Advisors, Henry Cartier, uh, senior partner, CWH Advisors, and Laurie Heavey, senior vice president marketing at Clear Balance Healthcare. So just a reminder about the NARI Leadership Council. Uh, we are still accepting applications for the 2021 to 2022 term. Uh, we are asking that current members of the council reapply just to let us know that they're interested in joining us for an additional year. This is a free networking opportunity. Um, so there is no fee to apply. There's no fee to join. Um, this is a way for folks in leadership positions and revenue cycle and revenue integrity from healthcare organizations across the country to get together with one another and network. So we do a series of surveys and in-depth reports, roundtable discussions, uh, some ad hoc meetings as issues arrive, uh, arise and, and challenges pop up with folks who are members of the council. Um, so a lot of really great networking and brainstorming going on with this group. We have extended the offer uh, for the free webinar uh, that you can get with the when, once you complete the application. Um, so there is a coupon code there at the end of the application. Uh, regardless of whether you're accepted to the council or not, um, you'll get the access to that free webinar. So that offer is good through the 15th of this month. So if you haven't had a chance to get your application in, uh, we certainly encourage you to do so. Uh, worth noting, you do not have to be a member of NARI to be a member of the council. Um, so feel free to pass this information along to anybody in your network that you think might benefit from this type of high-level networking. All right, and with that, we're gonna go ahead and get into our discussion today, uh, healthcare consumer payment trends. My first guest joining me is Sue Egan, Associate Director, Financial Solutions at GuideHouse. Sue, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Jackie. Um, as Jackie said, my name is Sue Egan. I have been in healthcare really for more than 30 years. I need to update that. Um, <laughs> I began working in healthcare actually for one of the Medicare carriers. My entire career has been focused on working with physicians and hospitals on coding and documentation, charge capture. Um, I'm excited to be here and looking forward to our discussion today. Absolutely. Happy to have you on the show, Sue. Joining myself and Sue is Holly Steinman, who is also with the GuideHouse team. Holly is the Managing Consultant for Financial Solutions. Holly, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jackie. Like Jackie said, my name is Holly Steinman. I've been in healthcare over uh, 24 years, mostly as a coding um, operations or coding managing, doing lots of physician education for documentation improvement and coding education. 
great. Happy to have you with us, Holly. Uh, and joining us as well from the Guidehouse team, Christine Rolson, uh, Managing Consultant of Financial Solutions. Christine, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Um, like she said, my name is Christine Rolison. I have 25 plus years experience in the healthcare industry in the areas of provider-based uh, physician group coding, auditing, education, and all areas of revenue cycle. Great, thank you, Christine. Mm -hmm. All right, and we've got a packed house today. We also have Graham Block, who's the senior, senior consultant financial solutions at Guidehouse. Graham, thanks for joining. Thanks, Jackie, yeah. Uh, I guess I'm the baby on the team. I, I've been in management consulting for about six years now, uh, primarily focused on revenue integrity, redesign, and optimization um, with uh, experience uh, focused in reconciliation and coding and charge capture. Well, we're excited to have you with us. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, uh, Paul Mannix, Senior Consultant Financial Solutions at Guidehouse. And Paul is going to be our moderator as well for today's group discussion. Paul, thank you for, for joining. Of course, Jackie, thanks for having us. I'm happy to round out our crew from Guidehouse here. Um, so my name is Paul Mannix. Um, I'm also a Senior Consultant here in our Financial Solutions um, practice and you know my focus has really been on epic optimization um, and revenue integrity and you know making sure that health systems are able to get the most out of their investment in epic um, so you know what we're going to be talking through today is uh, provider involvement and revenue integrity um, so this is an area where we see is often overlooked but definitely can be a great source of net revenue improvement um, so we're going to speak to a few areas that we think really stand out in this space um, what we're seeing out there with clients that we're working with and also some case studies um, on how to engage providers and how to realize some of this um, net revenue benefit so uh, with that said i'm going to pass it over to sue um, who's going to kick us off on our discussion on the 2021 guidelines Thanks, Paul. For anyone who's on this on our call today knows or has been involved with coding or billing for physicians that for Medicare purposes for outpatient services, you know that new guidelines went into effect January 1st of 2021. Most organizations provided education to all providers prior to those changes. What we have found surprisingly is that some organizations did not. They allowed providers to continue under those old guidelines or they put the rules out there but they didn't make it mandatory for the physicians. What we also learned was that the mode of education was really varied. So some organizations put modules out there and modules are okay but they're not necessarily the best way for education to be given to providers when you do an electronic module there's no interaction with an educator for the provider to ask questions we also found where some organizations did group education where they did one session and it was expected that all providers would be able to learn from that well, there's so many nuances within these new rules that it really needed to be done by specialty. And there's two real big things about these new rules that providers truly needed to understand. One, 
providers now can use time or they can use medical decision making. So time used to be where they had to have greater than 50% of the visits spent on counseling or coordinating care. And the time now is total time spent by that provider on that calendar day. And that's new and that's huge because any time that the provider spent prepping for that visit, reviewing records, looking at films, that was never really counted before. Now all of the time that that provider spends can now be calculated. We are still seeing a lot of providers using that old statement. And the concern is when we see that statement, we tend to think they don't know how to calculate time. So Holly, you know, is this in line with what you're seeing when you're doing your auditing? It is Sue. Uh, we have noticed that they're still using that same, um, maybe smart phrase about 50% of counseling or coordination of care. Those that have changed their smart phrase or smart statements have put in uh, time ranges, 30 to 35, 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, the other thing that I think is important in this time space is that much like before, we could look at a schedule and see how many patients you had and how much time you spent. We still can do that and we have noticed some concerns with providers using a lot of time and looking at their schedule of 30 patients. It may not be appropriate or even reasonable that they did all of that time in that, that given day. Wow. So let's break down what you just said because I think there were two very important elements there. So the first one is that time range. So when a provider gives a time range, so say they say 30 to 45 minutes, when they give a range, we usually have to go with that lower end, right? That's correct. Uh, to go with the lower end of the range would be the best way to um, dispute if you ever got audited that it was there. If you picked the middle of the range, it would be a little harder. But if you go with the bottom range, it would be very easy to dispute or appeal any denials that you got based on that um, saying a time range with the lowest being used for coding. Now, the second part of that I think is equally as important because, you know, time adds up. And, and I always like to say time is really the worst way to meet a level of service because through medical decision-making, you could meet a level of service in, in 10 minutes or you could spend 40 minutes to meet the same level of service. But if you are gonna meet level of service based on time, then time does accumulate over a period of an eight hour or a 10 hour day. So if you've got a doctor that likes to use time to meet his level of service, you've really gotta start adding up that that time over the day. And if you're seeing, if you have a, a provider that sees 30 patients in a day and he's billing half of his patients based on time, at some point you're gonna have to start adding up the time and saying, does this even make sense? Are there enough hours in the day based on what he's documenting to support what he says he's doing or he or, he or she says that they're doing, right? So this is something that from a coding perspective, you really need to pay attention how your doctors are documenting and really um, focus in on uh, time really should be the exception and not the rule. There are some specialties where 
time would be more likely, and that would be like those real data or study-driven um, specialties where they are spending a lot of time looking at films, looking at labs, spending time reviewing those films with patients. But for the most part, I, I like to think time is the exception and not necessarily the rule. So the other area that is um, really, really a big focus for physicians to understand this year is medical decision-making. Because we are no longer looking at history and exam. Yes, they are important to document, but we are no longer going to use those categories when selecting the level of service. We are going to focus on the medical decision-making. This is where doctors are to document what is wrong with the patient and what are they doing for that patient. So CMS has kind of clarified what they call the gray areas. And they've actually uh, included some new areas. And one of the big areas is a social determinant of health. And this is where physicians can document you know, homelessness, uh, economic factors, anything that can impact the patient's ability to receive care, pay for care, get care. So are they homeless? Do they not have transportation? Can they not afford care? Can they not afford their medication? Now, historically, this was always important to document, but it was really just part of that social history. Now, it's part of the medical decision-making and it's considered moderate medical decision-making and it's so important to document. Ali, are there other areas that you're finding where we're really having to refocus or stress to the physicians? There are a few. Uh, the undiagnosed new problem with uncertain prognosis is an area where I've had to do some re-education. CMS and AMA have come out with clear definition around uncertain prognosis, stating that it, it will likely result in a high probability of mortality. And this is important because many of the HRs, such as Epic, may have a wand. And if the provider isn't understanding definitions, they could select the wrong um, item within there and get the wrong level of service. Another area that we concentrated heavily on before was having the provider say the patient's hypertension was stable. The new definition of stable is at goal for the patient. So while their blood pressure may be stable across time and they're not necessarily having symptoms, if it's not truly at goal, that is not considered stable anymore, which is a change from previous for a lot of providers. Now, I want to go back just to the uncertain prognosis because the guidelines for 2021 are specific to the office. So we have two sets of guidelines going on. We have office and we have the, um, you know, 95, 97 guidelines for the hospital. So an undiagnosed new problem with an uncertain prognosis in the office is for a condition with a high probability, with a probability of high morbidity mortality, where the definition in the hospital still states just uncertain prognosis. So historically, a new problem with an uncertain prognosis, we looked at, you know, any unexplained bruising or bleeding could fall into that uncertain prognosis because you didn't necessarily know where it was coming from. It didn't have to have um, a high probability of morbidity or mortality. So, you know, our physicians are at a very um, complicated situation. They have to straddle both sets of guidelines. So they have to constantly keep into consideration 
what's happening in the hospital and what's happening in the office. Now, there is word that these guidelines will go into effect in the hospital in 2023, but that has not been confirmed. So they have to pay attention as to where the setting is, as to how they put that patient from a medical decision-making. And that's unfortunate because it's two sets of rules that they have to know and be able to follow because what may be a uh, moderate medical decision-making in the hospital, maybe low medical decision-making in the office. And that's really unfortunate. So just something for coders to think about and to empathize with their physicians as they're giving this education, because it is not going to be easy for them. And it hasn't been easy for them as we're finding, but you know, there is some good news. So based on the leveling for these new guidelines, we're seeing that 30 to 40% of what was a level two are now level threes. And that's just based on the definition of what a level two now is, or what a level two was is now a level three. And same for a level three, a lot, 30 to 40% of what was a level three are now level fours. But there are no big significant jumps from fours to fives. So if you're seeing physicians make big leaps from fours to fives, you really need to check that out and make sure that they're following those rules correctly. Now, the one downside that we are seeing is uh, really it kind of involves more acute issues, probably in the PCP office or urgent care. And this is specifically related to, related to acute uncomplicated issues that potentially were level fours, they are now level threes. Now, these are issues that were always under debate as to whether they were threes or fours. Now, it is definitive, they are threes. These are issues that will resolve under a direct course of treatment with prescription drug therapy, such as ear infections, sinus infections, UTIs, yeast infections. So if there was ever a debate whether they're fours or threes, now they're threes. Um, one of the, but what, you've, what folks need to shift to or think about is within your organization, we're finding folks don't have the bandwidth to do audits. They don't have the bandwidth to do the education required to do this follow-up. So you really need to make sure that you are doing follow-up auditing and follow-up education with your providers to ensure compliance and to ensure that your physicians are getting paid for the good work that they're doing. Um, I'm gonna turn it over to Chris right now because she actually worked with a large organization where they've really done a lot of work reorganizing an audit and education program. Chris, why don't you talk a little bit about what you did there? Sure. So I worked with a large health system that spans across four different states. Um, the client had identified about 4,400 encounters over a three month span that were downcoded without any communication to the providers. But you can imagine this caused a lot of tension and distrust with the providers between the providers and the coders. Um, so we were asked to perform a coding audit to verify level changes. Um, then once that was completed, we were asked to help create an audit and education program for the providers and work with the coding department to help with training and improve the communication and trust and get it back in within that process. The first thing we did was provide training on the new ENM guidelines to the coding educators and to the coding leadership. They in turn then took this training material and then and they went and trained all of the coding staff. Once the training was done, a coding assessment was given to the coding team to evaluate their skill set, and it was found that over 
overall, their accuracy rate was, was only at 62%. So we worked with their leadership to develop a quality audit process for the coders. While doing this, we also identified a need for about 17 new policies, procedures, and guidelines that needed to be implemented. Um, as far as the providers go, um, we created an action plan for improved and data-driven education to providers, I, you know, audits and education, which included ENMs and all other procedures. Um, we did this by utilizing coding denials report and the ENM bell curve analysis. And this, this, we did it this way to help the educators focus on which providers had the highest risk. And we, we also um, included, what we did is we created a weighted scoring system to help them, to help them um, focus on, help them focus so they could concentrate on the providers with the highest risk first. Um, the impact of all this education proved to be very successful. Um, the, the accuracy rate for the providers went from 58% to 94%, and the accuracy for the coders went from 62 to 90%. Now, this, is, this definitely is gonna be an ongoing process to keep the coder accuracy levels where they need to be as in with the providers. Um, they are currently working with the providers um, to do the same and get them off 100% review because they were on 100% review. Um, with the new changes coming into play, they did do provider education across, you know, all, the whole health system, but they didn't make it mandatory. So there were a lot of providers that didn't attend that that actual initial education that went out to them regarding the new guidelines. So. There was a lot of catch up to do, a lot of one-on-one -on -one education with the providers. So a lot of work went into that to get the providers where they needed to be to understand the new guidelines and code appropriately. So Chris, are you finding that the doctors were receptive, especially the ones that chose not to go to the initial education? Were they receptive to this? Um, they were. Um, I we On the education sessions that I sat in on, um, almost all, just, pretty much all of the providers were very receptive. They asked questions, they want to do it right, they wanted to understand the new guidelines and understand the new definitions. Um, you know, a lot of them, you know, were trying to figure out how to bill a four or five, but really it's it's really what's, what's going on with your patient and just having them understand that uh, so that they pick the appropriate level of service with what was going on in the patient that day. And yeah, I would say they were all pretty receptive. And and I know that we started with the physicians, you know, having a lack of trust with the coders, and it's a slow process to build that trust. But is that really is that is that moving in the right direction? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Awesome. It's a long process. It's taken many many months, but there definitely is improvement there. Great job. All right, Paul. Okay, thanks, Sue. So another area that we wanted to touch on is, um, you know, what we see in the, the post-live space um, as far as charge capture, you know, methodology. So 
you know, there's a lot of focus on revenue integrity at go live. Um, but, you know, best practice that we see is to not stop there, um, but to continue um, optimization after you stabilize. Um, so that's, that's something we want to touch on. And it's something, you know, we've, we've noticed it's really important to partner um, with physicians and, you know, other mid-level providers um, rather than try any sort of critique of their work um, when you're working in the post-life space. A lot of times they're doing the best that they can with the tools that they have available to them. Um, you know, and they may be running into barriers or be very frustrated about, you know, where they're at. So they're looking for, you know, someone from Revenue Integrity to come in and partner with them and do invest investigations um, and not kind of come in and reprimand them about what's going on. Um, so I think that's something just to keep in mind um, as we talk through these areas. Um, and we did want to highlight a few um, service lines in particular um, where we've seen a lot of success getting um, providers involved. So I'm going to pass it over to Graham to talk through um, some of those service lines. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, so some of the, the classic service lines we think about are those bedside procedures, procedures requiring administration, start and stop times, work RVUs related to the E&M bell curve in, in pharmacy. Um, but some specific strategies that can be taken to arm physicians and, and other mid-level providers uh, with the information that they need and to build that partnership in a more tangible fashion. Um, there's three main pillars I, I personally like to think of think uh, think of think of it as, and it's it's really the AR feedback loop. Thinking about you know denials and, and what we're receiving in our 835 files from from payers. Um, and then coding and documentation, which are interrelated related to that uh, that charge capture within revenue integrity. Um, so as far as an AR feedback loop, love to include uh, provider leadership by service line, as Paul had mentioned, uh, with denial summaries uh, tailored to interests uh, in the their day-to-day -day operation um, that they're involved in. So thinking about documentation and coding related denials or credentialing. Um, and then from there, uh, informing them with strategies to address the root cause of those issues operationally um, to avoid future issues with payers um, with, with future patients. As far as uh, coding education might go, we know that providers often select their own ICB-10 and procedure codes. Um, so proper training um, might reduce downstream manual rework from the coders uh, as, as they might have to update codes uh, in if it makes it to the payer level, reducing the likelihood of downgrades and denials from um, from audits or or in real time um, at the at the claim level. So uh, same idea, you know, building that relationship between documentation and coding, um, and what that might look like, um, in, in keeping everyone involved and looking at the same data together so that they can cause those issues. And then finally, from a documentation perspective, uh, best practice recommending that we try and document in a way that matches the CPT definition, um, to, uh, as far as the common payer requirements go, um, for those patients uh, to best support the selection to also reduce the risk of downcoding. Um, and then finally, uh, the, the classic issue we, we often see is um, those closing encounters to release those codes. Um, you obviously can't often uh, start coding until until those encounters are closed. Um, so that'll have two impacts a, on charge lag and sometimes even risk missing charges altogether. Um, so sharing those open encounter uh, reports on a daily basis and updating those policy and procedures, um, best practice 24 hours to close your encounter. 
that's great insight, Graham. And is it something you usually see um, kind of more grassroots engagement the, with the physician or you know, leadership getting involved and then disseminating it out? Yeah, it's a great question. I've seen it a number of ways. Uh, the the baseline ways involving your provider leadership in steering committees um, and then trickling down from there. Um, I've seen uh, organizations disseminate information um, by department, by provider, um, and, and having those targeted reports and feedback loops um, engaging at the provider level, at least at the department or bill area level. Um, and I've seen clients have uh, dedicated committees for medical group finance, um, apart from steering committees, uh, where they can uh, roll up questions and concerns and have open forum discussions and strategy discussions um, on a regular basis um, involving uh, provider leadership representation across the enterprise. Great, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know we're coming up on time, so we'll just very quickly um, touch on a case study here and you know where we have done work in the post-lab space and some of the success we've seen when you do get these providers involved. Sure. Um, so in this next case study, uh, this is where we were working with a large academic medical center in the Mid-Atlantic on several different initiatives. Through conversations with the client, it was identified that they had no reconciliation process for their inpatient professional charges. With the identification of no reconciliation, a proof of concept review was performed on 100 hospital stays, which found significant amount of missing charges. This was done through reviewing the documentation for every day, for every provider, for all specialties, while the patient, throughout the patient's stay, to make sure no charges that um, should be associated were missed. This review was more complex due to it being an academic medical center um, that also used APPs in their inpatient services. So the review needed to confirm the EM, the diagnosis, the teaching attestation, and the split shared documentation. Mm -hmm. um, with that, we identified what the, the actual problem was their EHR didn't interface with the billing system. So in collaboration with with the client, the reconciliation process was created to ensure that all the provider inpatient services were captured, which fo focused on hospital rounding for all specialties and bedside procedures. Um, it wasn't an easy process and it, it involved multiple folks from Guidehouse and the client in order to ensure no services would be missed. Um, with that, you know, a decision was made to go back 18 months based on payer guidelines and timely filing. So some considerations that we took into uh, to make the decision was the cost because we needed to engage coders to go back and do this look. So there was the cost involved with actually taking the each chart to go back and look. And then we knew that there would be patient satisfaction to take into consideration because patients were going to get bills. So we had to write the report to look at the insurance to make sure that all reviews followed insurance payer guidelines so that only claims that were eligible for payment were filed. The project impact brought in $5.2 million, but really the impact was much, much larger than this because on an ongoing basis, they will no longer miss any missed charges. And working with the physicians to ensure that they are turning in charges is important as well, but this reconciliation process will ensure that no charges are missed in the future. Paul? 
Great, Thank, thanks Sue, thanks Chris, and thanks Holly for talking us through um, that second case study. Um, you know, I think it's a great, great example of, you know, success in that post-life space. Um, so that that is the last area that we wanted to cover is the GuideHouse team. Um, Jackie, thank you so much for having us on the podcast, um, and for folks who are able to tune in. Um, you know, we are happy to speak with you offline if you're, um, you know, have questions about your specific organization. Um, we'd love to have a conversation with you about it um, and offer some feedback. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Graham, Holly, Christine, Paul, and Sue. Uh, always a pleasure to have a great roundtable discussion on this program. Uh, really helpful to hear some of the case studies that you had to offer here. Um, and always love having new folks on the, the podcast with me. So I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to join us uh, and appreciate our listeners as well for tuning in once again. As a reminder, the next live episode that you can catch is on October 21st. We are recruiting for guests uh, now through the episodes through the end of the year. Uh, so if you are interested in joining us on the podcast, um, go ahead and shoot me an email, jfitzgerald at hcpro.com, and we'll set up a date to get you in front of the Revenue Integrity Show audience. So with that, uh, we will say goodbye to you for now, and we hope that you will tune in and uh, check in with us again soon. Thanks again to the team at GuideHouse, and thanks to everyone for listening. Bye.